Good morning. Welcome to church. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It is the football playoffs. How many people love football? How many people tolerate football? How many people have someone in your house that shouts at a TV screen? Absolutely. Hey, kids, you can be dismissed. You can head out that way to Tim, you open? Tim, get open. Get open, baby. Oh, I got to go to this side because I was warned by the worship team if I miss it. Oh, so close. I was so close. I never played organized football. I know, hard to imagine, isn't it? I never played organized football, but I do love football. Um, how many people here, your favorite football player is Taylor Swift? Yeah, okay. One of the reasons, that, one of the reasons I'm fired about, about the football playoffs this year is my team, the San Francisco 49ers, have a very real shot to win it all. How many 49ers fans do we have here? How many Dallas Cowboys fans do we have in here? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's all I'm saying. No, I never played organized football. I remember as a freshman in high school, I went to school the first day of freshman year. And during the freshman year, first day, they say, hey, if you would like to play football, you can go out for the team this afternoon, show up after school for the football tryouts. And so I went down to the locker room to try out for football. And as I walked into the locker room to try out for football, a team was coming out that was in full uniform and pads, and they were huge. They were huge guys. And so I looked at them and turned around and went home. And my mom said when I got home, she said, how'd it go at football tryouts? I said, I didn't make the team. I didn't even try out for the team. What I found out later was that was the varsity team, and the freshman team that I would have been on was made up of guys that were half my size. I could have been somebody. I'm telling you right now. But I let it all slip away. I never played organized football, but I, I did play street football. How many people here played street football? Street football, where the quarterback draws the routes on his hand. You're going to go this way, and then hang, and then go. And you go, Jimmy, you're going to go up 10 steps, hang a right, and, and then I'm going to hit you on the other side of the red Chevy. You know, anybody have that? Where you played that in the street, right? You always had somebody who was like, Timmy, you're going to go down, catch the J bus, go two stops, have the bus driver open the door, I'll fake it to you, okay? And then there's always one kid who couldn't play at all, who was really a liability, and they'd always say, what about me, what about me? And the quarterback would say, you go long. Like long, like further, further, right? I, I really do love football. I enjoy all about it. But here's the thing. What is the goal of a football team? Go ahead. I'll take answers. What's the goal of a football team? Win? Eh. What's that? To have fun. Spoken like a true... <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, you can't make that stuff up. Um, what, is the, what is the real purpose of a football team? I heard somebody say it. It's score. But let me give you this. There are only two things any football team is ever trying to do. They are trying to get this ball either across the goal line 
or they are trying to kick this ball between the uprights. Those are the only two things. Now, defense is doing everything they can to prevent those things. There are some uh, rules that allow some other, but at all times, the purpose of the team with the ball is to get this ball to either cross the goal line or to kick it between the uprights. That's the purpose of football. You hope that'll add up to enough points that you win the game. You hope you win enough games that you end up in the playoffs. You hope you win enough playoff games that you win the Super Bowl. That's how it works, but it is super simple. This week, we are continuing our message series about discipleship, about follow. And Glenn started off last week talking about um, the calling of the first disciples. Jesus literally sees some guys on the street and he says, I want you on my team, and I want you on my team, and I want you on my team. And they said, yes, I'm in. I want to be on your team. It's like getting picked first for street football, right? And, and so they left, but these guys left everything behind to follow Jesus. They left everything behind to join his team. And Jesus looked at these guys with a penetrating stare, and they left their career, they left their homes, and they left their life, and they went with Jesus. So, what does it actually mean to get on Jesus' team, to follow Jesus? To, to, what is the goal of being a disciple? What is the purpose of being a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, it's simple. There are only two things that you're doing if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Here's the purpose of a disciple. A disciple's purpose is to love God and love others. Cross the goal line, kick it through the uprights, love God and love others. Those are the only two things. And so we're going to take a dive into the scriptures this morning, and we're going to see where Jesus talked about this. Jesus was asked a question by um, some religious leaders at the time, and they were really trying to trip him up in this particular moment. And this is his reply, and it becomes what we know as the great commandment, the greatest commandment. Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 22. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, you must what? Love the Lord your God with all your, what else? All your soul and what else? All your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Get this. It continues and it says, a second is what? Equally important. It's equally important. Love your as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So, what does it mean to follow these commandments? What does it mean to do these things, to follow God and to be a disciple? It's those two things. It's love God and love others. That's what it is. Uh, let's close in prayer. God, thank you so much. Short sermon today, right? It's super simple. Well, I'm going to unpack it a little bit, but it really is that simple. Let's unpack this a little bit. Because Jesus quotes the Old Testament here. Um, it, this is something every Jew would have known. It's called the Shema. This is the Shema, and it literally means, and disciples, listen up. The Shema, literally Shema means listen. It means here in, in some of the translations, hero Israel. In this translation, it's listen. It's listen up. This is what it means. In Deuteronomy, he's referencing Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. They call this the Shema because of that first word. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord God with all your, what? And all your? And all your, so this is something that Jews would have recited daily, really. I mean, probably thousands and thousands of times in their life, they would have said the Shema. And, And so in this, and most of them would have said it at least twice a day, right? And so Jesus talks about the Shema as the first and greatest commandment. So 
I want to pull this apart just a little bit today, and I want you to see how this thing shakes out. The first word in the Shema is you. And what I want you to get from that is you is personal. You is uh, one of those things in grammar for us where it can mean a lot of different things, where if you're trying to learn English, you don't understand you that often. But this is personal. It's pointed. It's directed at you. And, and it, I'm not saying that there's not a place for this where it applies to all of us as a community of believers, because it, it does and it can, but it's lived out individually. It's lived out with you and you and you up there in the top row, right up there. It, it's you guys. Yeah, I see you up there. It's, this, is, this is what we do, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. So, And then the next word is must. You must, which means it is not optional. This is not optional. This is uh, not called the great suggestion. This is the great commandment. You are commanded to do this. So it applies to, uh, it applies to everyone. But if you aren't doing this, you aren't a disciple. That's the simple truth about it. So, and then we hit the word love, which is the root of all of this. And the word that I want to introduce you to today, if you haven't heard it already, many of you have already heard it, is the word agape. That's a Greek word, agape, that defines this kind of love. What is love? What is love, baby? Never mind. Four of you got that. Thank you. What is love? Is is love a feeling, or is love an action? Is it a is it a verb, or is it or is it sort of describing some things? Right. Um, if if love is a feeling, you cannot command it of someone. Right. You can't must a, a, a feeling. You can't say to somebody, you must. Anybody else have a junior high crush on some girl or boy in junior high school? Oh, I was the only one. Good. You can't say you must love me. It doesn't work that way. I can tell you from experience. You, you know, it doesn't work that way. You ever try and get somebody to, to get an emotion? Like you're like, be angry. Get angry about it. Not really that angry, right? You, you, ever, you ever try and get somebody to get, uh, be happy about something? Come on, be happy. Turn that frown upside. It doesn't work. You cannot force someone into an emotion. It just doesn't work that way, right? Um, have you ever tried to get somebody excited? Get excited, man. Get fired up. Come on. Woohoo! And they're like, woohoo. It's, it's just, it's hard to command someone to have an emotion, right? Um, but you can command somebody how to act. And, and you could say to somebody, hey, if you're a business owner, you say, hey, smile at the customers. At least pretend you're happy, Right? You could say to your employees, show up on time. At least pretend like you're excited to be here at work, right? But you can't command a feeling. But this kind of love is not a feeling. Agape love is not a feeling. And so I want you to see it's an action. And so this is agape love. For those of you visual learners, I'm going to show you the Bible project because they do such a great job of unpacking this. Take a look at this. And so if you've heard of Jesus, is. you probably know about one of his famous teachings called the Golden Rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And this, actually, is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English, because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures, where the word for love is ahava, 
However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day was a cousin language of Hebrew, that is, Aramaic, in which the word for love is rachmah. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important, to love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important, loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they're inseparable. And so this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them, expecting more nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that's the New Testament meaning of agape love. It's easy to rattle off the word love over and over again, but I think it's such a loaded word in our culture, I would rather use the word agape. 
so that we're on the same page with what this means. So, who are we supposed to agape when we read the Shema here and Jesus' answer? The first one is the Lord your God. That's who we're supposed to agape, the Lord your God. It starts with him, and it implies the Lord your God is a personal relationship between you and this God, right? This is not some generic, distant God, this, this God that you sort of believe is out there somewhere. This is whose God is it? It's your God. You have an actual relationship. You cannot agape or you cannot love something that you don't have a relationship, someone that you don't have a relationship. And then it says, with all. And for me, that means all in. We're all in on this love. In fact, we're going to see over and over again where, where he says over and over again, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. He repeats it again. You cannot do this halfway. You have to be all in on this love. And then we're going to see the three or the four things, actually, that come out of this. The first is all your heart. And I want you to see from that word heart, it, this is from your core, from your very core. In the New Testament Hebrew, lang- I mean in the Old Testament Hebrew language, the heart was to be this hidden core inside of you. It's the core of your physical, mental, um, spiritual life. Is, is this, that is your heart. It's your core, the very core of our being. In the Greek language, that same idea comes, but with a little more emphasis on the things that you are affectionate about, the things that you are passionate about, right? We love and and are passionate about some things. If you love and are passionate about football, it leaks out. You can't help it. You say, did you see the game last night? If you love and are passionate about your kids, it leaks out. Let me tell you about what my daughter's doing. And, And so those things that are at the core of us begin to come out from your core at the center of our lives at the center of our affections we see it in the scriptures here in proverbs 27 listen to what it says as a face is reflected in water so the what the heart is reflects the what your heart from your core reflects who you are and so you see it at your very core right um y- y- they can tell they can see it in you right because we agape god so all of your soul is the next one it says all of your soul and that means every part of you your soul in the uh, old testament hebrew refers to you as a whole person the whole individual it's the totality of your life right all your various desires all your various affections everything in your emotions and your thoughts it's the whole of you so We're to love God with all of our desires, all of our affections, all of our emotions, and all of our thoughts. Not just the core of our being, but every part of our being, every fiber of our being. And our whole identity is so entangled with God that he's in every part of our lives. We see that in Psalm 63, where it says, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My what? My soul thirsts for you. My what? My whole body, every part of me longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. My whole body longs for you, right? Jesus Jesus takes over every part of us. And then, this is interesting, Jesus does something a little different. He says, and all your mind, which is every thought is what I'm talking about here. Every thought. Our mind represents our capacity to think. If something is in your core and it becomes a part of all of you, eventually it gets up to your mind, and your mind 
directs everything that you do, right? Our, our mind is our capacity to think and to reason and, and uh, to learn. And God wants every part of our mind, all of our intellectual abilities and mental capacity. And so wh- what that means for me is that we don't fill our mind with things that aren't full of agape for God. That's what we do. We don't fill our mind with things that are like that. Listen to the way 2 Corinthians says it. It says, we destroy every what? Proud obstacle. I got some of those in my mind that keeps people from knowing God. We, what do we do? We capture their what? We capture those rebellious thoughts and we teach them to obey Christ, right? And so we, we, we find a way to capture our thoughts. We, if, if you love God with all your mind, you capture every thought and you make it obedient to Christ. That's every lustful thought. That's every prideful thought. It's every um, hateful thought. It's every jealous thought or fearful thought. All those thoughts that are swirling around in our mind, we capture them and, and we make them obey Christ. We turn them back towards Christ. We teach our mind to obey Christ. But get this, if you look back to Matthew and you look at the Shema and you compare those two, the mind doesn't appear in the Shema. Mind doesn't appear in the Shema. Did, uh, did Jesus just misquote the Shema? Can you imagine? These are people who have said this every day of their life for, for two times a day, thousands and thousands of times. And Jesus says, what does it say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And they were probably repeating it along with him. They were like, with your heart and with your soul and with your strength. And they went, wait a second, he said it wrong. He said it wrong. And so it, did Jesus get it wrong? Well, I think Jesus is expanding on the Shema, and he's trying to get you to understand you can't agape anything if you don't decide in your mind that you're going to do it. But he left out strength. Well, we're going to see here in just a second that strength is in the Shema. It's in Deuteronomy. But actually strength is in all the other Gospels. How many people have been doing the reading plan this week? 90 days reading through Jesus. You notice that we end up reading the same story again and again on the same day? It's because we're reading them where they appear in different Gospels, but the same story appears. The same, this same exchange appears in three of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, this idea of the greatest commandment. And in the others gospels it says mind and strength it includes all four things so i want us to look at strength here because all your strength means every effort every effort the hebrew word used here implies the idea of loving god with all our power and all our strength and all our effort everything we have at our disposal in football they call this leaving it out on the field that means no matter what's going on in my life No matter what I've got going on at home, no matter what I've got going, when I put on the pads and the jersey and I run out that tunnel, I'm going to give everything I have on that football field. And frankly, it may end up me being injured. I may end up with broken bones. I may end up concussed. But because I love this game, because I'm all in on this game, I'm going to give everything I have to this, every effort, everything we have at our disposal. Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark tells it this way in that same Uh, greatest commandment framework. Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, which Jesus added, and all your what? And all your strength. And all your strength. Now, here's what I want you to get from this. Are you seeing the progression? 
See, the progression goes like this. It starts in your core. This, this agape begins deep within our core, right? And then it moves out to every aspect of our being, every fiber of our being. And eventually it infects our mind and it becomes this agape is controlling our thoughts. And not only our thoughts, but those thoughts control our actions and then our strength. Every ounce of every effort we have inside of us, we are going to put that agape into action all around us. And you're going to do that with everything you've got. You're, you're going to do it with your abilities, You're going to do it with your family. You're going to do it with your time, with your talent, with your resources, with your job, with your school, with your money, with your everything that you have, all your effort and all your energy. And so the summation of all of this is this. How do we give God? The the idea of being a disciple is that we love God. We agape God with everything in us, everything in us. But if you actually love God that way, if you are sold out the way that this is talking about being sold out, People will think you are crazy, right? They will think you are nuts. If, if you really love God this way where you're sold out a thousand percent, you are, you're going to be called a fanatic. Now, somebody who goes to a football game and is all in on their team is called a fan. Have you seen people at the football game like this, right? It's the, it's the barrel guy from the from the. Dunk, Denver Broncos, look at the people in the background, what they're wearing. Or worse yet, in Buffalo? I don't know if you've read the news reports, how cold it's supposed to be. They canceled the game today, moved it to tomorrow because it's supposed to be like minus 30 in Buffalo there. With two inches of snow every hour, okay? I want you to imagine that. In Kansas City last night, it was like minus five degrees. It was so cold in Kansas City last night that you couldn't even see Taylor Swift behind the glass of her luxury suite. But these guys are like, what what temperature is it? I don't care. I'm all in. I'm all in. And so that's what we're asking for because you're going to be branded a fanatic if you do that with your faith in Jesus Christ. You give how much? You give how much to these Christian charities and and your church? Like, what? Let me me get this straight. You're going to take a week of your vacation and you're going to go on a mission trip to where? You're serving how many? many, Why are you over there all day? How many times are you serving? What are you going to do? I don't understand this. The truth of the matter is, is if we're all in for God in every area of our life, people are going to think that you are a fanatic. Now, Jesus says, and we saw in the, in the uh, Bible Project video, that the other side of this agape coin is equally important. Not only that we love God that much, uh, but it's equally important. This is not the first commandment and the second commandment. They are equally important, it says in the scripture. This is all one commandment. And a disciple's other purpose is just as important. It's just as important. And we see that Jesus, again, quotes from an Old Testament verse um, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It says, but love your who? As who? As yourself. I am the Lord. I don't know about you, but I love myself a lot. Most of the time. And to love someone else like that is, is counterintuitive. Honestly, let's look. Here in the book of Luke, another one of these great commandment stories. This one's a little different, and we're going to expand on it a little bit here. But this one starts with, an, one day, an expert in what? Religious law. This, we're going to call this guy a lawyer. This is a lawyer. An expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. So this guy is asking Jesus the question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied with a question. What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man, the lawyer answers this time. 
He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your what? All your and. This guy must have heard Jesus say this before because he added mine just like Jesus added mine. And so it's in there. And he says, and he doesn't even drop off. He says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says what? Right, right. Just do this and you will live. Simple. The man wanted to what? Dang it. Man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and what? Who is my neighbor? These are the same exchanges, same commands, same responses, but this, this time the answer comes from the guy asking the questions, and Jesus says, yeah, do that. And the lawyer does what lawyers always do. He is looking for a loophole. How do I get out of this? How do I justify my actions, right? Because the funny thing about it is the motivation for this question, and who is my, la- my neighbor? The justification for that question is this. I hear what you're saying. I understand it. It all makes sense. And I know I've got some neighbors I should do that for. But who isn't my neighbor? Who don't I have to do this for? I realize there's some people out there that I should do this for. I mean, clearly, obviously. But you don't expect me to do this for everyone, do you? You don't expect me to do that for everyone. Who don't I have to do that for? And here's the point I want you to see as disciples of Jesus Christ. Listen, disciples aren't looking for excuses. Disciples aren't looking for excuses. Just like football players aren't looking for excuses. The worst thing you can do in football is to blame somebody else. When the quarterback blames the receiver who dropped the ball, you're in trouble. When the guy who dropped the ball blames the quarterback for throwing it wrong, you're in trouble. Football players aren't looking for excuses. They're looking for opportunities. Football players aren't trying to get out of practice. The best football players are the ones that show up first and leave last. They know that every time they go to practice, they have an opportunity to become better at what they do. They aren't looking for an excuse. Football players, when they are told to go into the game, they aren't looking around like, nah, I'm good. I'm good. Let that guy go. Football players are like, yes, put me in, coach. I want a chance to show what I can do. I know I can do this. Put me in the game, coach, right? And, and that's why they play the game, right? That's what it means to be a football player. You aren't looking for a way out. You're looking for a way in. And so I would just tell you this. If there is somebody in your life that right now you're looking for a way out of loving, if you're looking for a way out of agapeing, I can guarantee you that's somebody that is your neighbor. You are supposed to agape them. You are supposed to jump into it with them, right? If, if, if you're trying to exclude them as your neighbor, I guarantee you they are your neighbor. So you may be asking, well, Steve, how far does this love my neighbor thing go anyway? Well, I'm glad you asked, and I'm glad our lawyer asked, uh, because it leads me to... Jesus gives us the so what this morning. Jesus gives us the so what. He jumps into a story. Now, this is a story that you know. It's a story that the whole world knows. In fact, studies tell us that even in a time of decreasing church attendance and decreasing biblical literacy, more and more people know this story. It is a story that you, you obviously will know. It's the story of a wounded traveler. Here's the story of this wounded traveler. Jesus literally responds to the lawyer like this. He says, Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, 
beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Now I want you to imagine coming upon this scene. There's a guy half dead on the side of the road. Clothes have been stripped off him. You're not sure what happened here. You don't know at all what's going on. Would you walk by that guy? I hope not. I hope you wouldn't. But you know who did walk by him? Two religious dudes. Two religious dudes walked right by him. Two religious dudes walked right by him. I think our computer crashed. Oh, there we go. Two religious dudes. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 10, continuing the story. By chance, a what? A pastor came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A what else? A youth pastor walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. I don't know why it is, but religious people always take it on the chin in Jesus' story. You do not want to be a pastor in Jesus' world, right? They come off looking bad. But this priest is walking down the road, and he literally crosses over to the other side. The youth pastor comes by, and he at least walks over to take a look, and he goes, wow, that looks bad. You're going to need some medical attention, but I'm leading a youth group game in just a while. i got to pick up some straws and solo cups and cotton balls. And so he walks by on the other side, and he continues on. He keeps walking. And then, he, and then get this, and a despised Samaritan comes by. It says in Luke chapter 10, then a what? Despised. How many people have heard this uh, told as the good Samaritan? Because the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt what? Compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged him. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits, Jesus asked. And the man replied, the one who what? The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and what? We call this the story of the Good Samaritan, but this is not the story of the Good Samaritan. It's the story of the despised Samaritan. Our hero in this story is called a despised Samaritan. He's not, he's not a priest. He's not a pastor. He's not a youth pastor. He's not a temple assistant. He is a foreigner. He is an unbeliever. He is an outcast. And he came by and he sees this wounded traveler and he felt compassion for this man and he did something about it. And he agaped him. He put love into action. He agaped him. You, listen, you never know what is going to happen when you step into someone else's pain, when you get involved in someone else's hurt. I read a story this week. This is a true story about a guy who was a bus driver. He's driving his bus in the middle of a snowstorm. And this is a true story. Came over on the AP wire. It, it's... Uh, he was driving his bus in a snowstorm. When he stopped, two elderly ladies got off of the bus and started walking in the snowstorm and were looking across the street. 
Well, he thought, this is crazy. They're going to, you know, it's, it's way too dangerous. So he stopped the bus. He gets out of the bus. Him and another passenger actually help these two older ladies across the street. As they get halfway across the street, a pickup truck is coming down the street at unusually high speed and hits this guy who just before that pushes these two old ladies and the other guy out of the way. He gets hit by this truck and he goes to the ER. Now, he goes to the ER, uh, and, and he's got bleeding on the brain. He's got broken bones, a dislocated shoulder, possible ruptured spleen. He's in serious but stable condition. And when he got there, the Colorado State Patrol issued him a ticket for jaywalking. He got a ticket for jaywalking. In fact... They issued a citation to the other guy who got pushed out of the way, too. What we don't know is if they gave a citation to the two old ladies. Really? You have no idea when you step into someone else's hurt what it's going to cost you and how you're going to have to really stick with it all the way through. He awoke in intention care. He says his reaction was dazed and confused. I was a little angry. You think? The other man was cited for jaywalking. The pickup driver was cited with careless driving that led to the injury. Here's what I want you to see. Here's what we learn about disciples stepping into people's pain and living out agape love. Here's the first one. Disciples see the need instead of turning away. Disciples see the need instead of turning away. Listen, agape always starts with the eyes. You have to see people's needs. If you've got your head down, you will never see the needs. If you're not aware, you, won't, you can't care, right? It's, it's when he sees the man. He opens his eyes and he sees this man. And there are wounded people everywhere. There are wounded people in this room right now. You're hiding it pretty good. But there are wounded people the moment you walk out of those doors. Some of you will get in your car and you will drive home. And on your way home, you're going to look over at a stoplight or at a stop sign. You're going to see the person in the car next to you. And I guarantee you that some of them are wounded and hurting desperately right now. But you've got to open your eyes to see it, right? Because most of the time we aren't looking. Why, why don't we see it? Most of the time I think it's just because we're busy. I think we're too focused on where we need to get to next. And, and, and our busyness creates... The, Hurry, hurry is the enemy, is the death of agape. If you are in a hurry, you cannot engage. And the religious leaders were on their way to Jericho, probably to leave a worship service. I got to get there. I got to preach or lead communion or, or start some ministry, right? I don't have time to help. I got to get to, I got to get to church. But disciples jump into action, into the situation. Here's the second thing we see disciples do. Do something instead of nothing. Man, you got to do something instead of nothing. You see the need, maybe you even sympathize with the need. But if you won't seize the moment, if you won't do something right then and there, agape never happens. Love never goes into action, right? And he didn't. See, he sees the moment. This guy, he sees the opportunity. He didn't procrastinate. He did what needed to be done. If you and and here's the funny thing: if you don't actually do what you can do, it's all talk. It's not agape. You're not really a disciple in that moment. You may not be able to do everything like this guy did, but you are able to do something and step into the situation. And then here's the last one. Disciples see it through instead of dipping out. See it through instead of dipping out. Dipping out is my way of being cool with the young folks. They know what I'm talking about. Am I right? That means you don't walk away. 
you, 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 you finish this thing. This guy, he gets, he gets down. He bandages this guy's wounds. He throws him on his own donkey. He walks alongside this donkey, right? He's going to hoof it for miles and miles and miles while this guy is on his donkey. It's going to cost him his time. It's going to get there. It's going to take twice as long to get there. And, and when he gets there, he's basically going to hand over his Amex, and he's going to say, hey, listen, this guy needs a room. He's got to heal up. Could you call a doctor, get somebody from urgent care over here, take a look at him? I'll cover everything. I'll cover it all, right? That's that's basically a blank check. Just put a hold on my card and and charge whatever it costs, whatever it costs. What do you think this guy got for his trouble? Nothing. He didn't know this guy. This guy, who knows who he is? And he's not going to get any benefit out of it, right? He didn't even know this guy. That's what agape is. Agape is doing something for someone expecting nothing in return. Absolutely nothing in return. Agape love may cost you the last few dollars in your wallet. It may cost you your time or your inconvenience. It may cost you a trip to the ER. But we do this agape because would I want someone to do it for me? Yes. Would I want somebody to stop what they're doing and do something for me? Yes. I, the quote that I want to read you here is from Martin Luther King Jr. and and uh, it's, it's MLK weekend, and uh, Martin Luther King was talking about this passage, and he says this. On the parable of the Good Samaritan, I imagine that the first question the priest and the Levite asked was this. If I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? What's it going to cost me? What, what will happen to me? But by the very nature of his concern, the Good Samaritan reversed the question and said, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Will he just die on the side of the road? Now, here's a truth from a pastor to a congregation. Be careful what you preach on. Because the moment you commit to a passage or, or a chapter or a concept, you immediately get tested on it all week long. Okay? So, let me tell you about this week. It seemed like every single time I turned around, there was an interruption coming. Upward basketball is right around the corner. I am knee deep, eyes deep in all the stuff that I am trying to do and get ready for it. And every time I turned around, there was somebody that had a need that was a valid need and I wanted to help from. In our church, we have a a food pantry. How many people know about this? We have a food pantry over here that gets stocked and we give out bags of food to people who are in need. They can stop by the office anytime and get a bag of food. And whenever they do, the gals at the front desk will look down the hall and say, hey, could somebody take someone out to the food pantry? Now, I don't know if it's because I'm the only one in the office, but it seemed like it was me every time this week. And here's the thing, I don't have any misgivings about doing that. But the people who came in this week wanted to talk. (laughs) So much. And I'm, you know, the funny thing is, is I'm happy to be in that conversation. I love them. But the whole time I'm thinking, oh, man, I got stuff I got to do. I got to finish this up. I can't. I, I, I got to do this. And, and they're talking to me. And you want to know what hit me as I was preparing this message? Shema. It means listen. Sometimes the greatest gift you can give someone is that you will just listen to them. We can meet their needs, but... Sometimes it's just a listening ear that will listen to their pain, will walk with them through it, and to give them some care and some concern. And God was challenging me all week. Are you willing to just listen to these people and do what you can? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Shema. Father God, as, as we walk into a week ahead of us, Father, and we've got opportunities to shema, and we've got opportunities to, to jump into difficult situations like, like the wounded traveler and the despised Samaritan did for him, God, I pray that you would open our hearts to see what it means to agape everywhere and every place and with everyone that you put in our path, God. Would you give us the resources and the capacity and even the margin, the space, God, to engage those moments and not walk away, Father, because I want to be a disciple. And it only takes two things, that I would agape you with everything I have and that I would agape everybody that comes into my life with everything I have. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.